Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Are You a Robot? Today, we are joined by none other than Stephen Lee. If you do not know already, I am Demetrios Brinkman, and this is a show that aims to tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that stem from artificial intelligence and related technologies. The way that we're going about that is by gathering the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields and having them come on here to talk with me about what exactly it is they're doing, how they see the current state of affairs, and if there's anything we need to pay particular attention to. Let's hear a quick intro from Stephen before we jump into this full conversation. My name is Stephen Lee. Um, in the broadest sense, I'm a researcher and advisor to federal and commercial entities on the effective use of emerging technologies to solve uh, some very complex and interdisciplinary challenges. One last thing before we go, I wanted to mention that this episode and in fact, this entire season that we have been doing has been kindly sponsored by For Humanity. If you do not know what For Humanity is doing, they are a nonprofit that aims to create trust within AI systems by third-party independent audits. So if you would like to learn more about For Humanity, I encourage you to check out their website. You can find that in the links of the description. And also, I would highly encourage you to get involved with what they're doing. You've heard for the whole season all of these smart people coming on here and talking with me about what they're doing, and you see how far extending the work that For Humanity is doing. It is incredible to see how much traction they're getting and the type of people that are involved in this project. So if you would like to learn more or get involved, go ahead, jump in to that link that you can find in the description below. Without further ado, let's talk with Stephen Lee. Are you a robot? It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. I'm excited to chat with you about so many things. But first, I want to know your story. I want to hear more about you and how you came to be where you are. Yeah, so I have worked with data almost my entire career. I've, I've had a very colorful career. I've worn a lot of different hats, done a lot of different things. But there was always this commonality of data, right? Uh, using information to do something. Um, I the, the term data scientist and all these buzzwords uh, weren't really prevalent at the time. It was just analysis, <laughs> quantitative analysis um, and, and sort of domain analysis. And I was always really fascinated on the power uh, of that could be unlocked in data, right? So data in and of itself is not necessarily useful, right? It's the information underneath, but it's not always apparent at face value what that information is. A lot of times it's obscured, uh, it's hidden by you know masses of numbers and really being able to do that detective work to pull out those insights was super cool to me. And that's how I ended up in this industry. Oh, I love what you say there is how data in itself is not valuable until you can basically extract the special juice from it and you can realize or make it powerful. So one thing that we really wanted to talk about today was data privacy. We also wanted to talk about data access 
And as we move into that sphere of things, mm-hmm. when we're looking at how people are able to access data, and now I'm talking about the general public, not the data scientist who is trying to get access to data at the job, right? I'm talking about us as the general public. What are some of these barriers that the random people on the streets have when it comes to accessing data? Sure. I think in talking about something like that, it's it's helpful to, to set the, the context, right? The mindset. And so I usually start the discussion by talking about technology in general, right? Uh, most of us who are regular technology users have probably noticed there's a great deal more information available to us on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, I can look up a word or an entire topic I don't know in the middle of a conversation, right? Um, I can take a photo of an object and, and instantly identify what it is and get a, a price comparison when I'm standing in line. Uh, and amid this, I think the more intuitive among us probably have a sense that in order for all this to happen, someone must be collecting and generating, or at the very least exposing, way more information than what we used to. Um, what was it? I, you probably have a, a much more recent estimate, but something like two and a half quintillion bytes of data produced every day, something like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, even without that number, I think you just think about the amount of data that I may have personally generated on a random Monday 10 years ago. And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what one broadcast after 10 minutes on their smartphone, right? <laughs> so, you know, we can certainly dive into the, the implications of all this. And I know you've covered really cool related topics in past episodes, uh, but I think one really positive effect of more information is more awareness and more impetus to action, right? People are far more cognizant of the dire challenges that others face, uh, of global concerns, of disparities, injustices, opportunities to make a difference. And accordingly, there are a lot of really important discussions about basic needs and fundamental human rights, right? Right to food, water, shelter, uh, complex topics like safety, job security, healthcare, and opportunity. And it's a little meta, but if you think about it, data and information and knowledge and awareness are absolutely factors that play into all of these topics. And so then that's where we start to look at what is the right to information? Is that a fundamental right? That people have. Oh, and that's so interesting too, because I've spoken with someone on here and they talked about how data is or should be considered a fundamental right. Like the and this access to data should also mm-hmm. be considered a fundamental right. How do you stand on that? <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, if we're thinking about these things conversationally, uh, without getting into overly academic descriptions and discussions. I think when people talk about what they encounter in their realities and reason through really familiar scenarios, I think they often walk away with a much greater understanding and readiness to spot sort of these inequalities and these concepts the next time they read the news. And so I'll give you a couple examples from that standpoint. Um, I like to think of things in three general areas when I discuss this topic. Uh, There's dissemination, right? What is the information? How and to whom is the information being sent? Uh, You know, what are the vectors or channels? And have you even identified in some comprehensive and equitable fashion the people who need to know that information? All right, there's different aspects of all this. Imagine uh, mass evacuation, right? Uh, Gotham City's 
surrounded by bridges that are <laughs> blowing up and Bane's trying to take over, right? In this mass evacuation, somebody who lives in a certain section of the city would need to know traffic for that part of the city, perhaps more urgently than somebody who's on the outskirts, right? So then when do they need this information? In what format? You know, is it in the right language? Is, does it have the right timing? Do they have a fair chance to get to that information when they need it? Um, yeah, so the, the, the second dimension would actually be that access. Once you've made the information available, does everyone have a fair chance to get to that information given their unique circumstances? Uh, so one easy example of this would be an emergency broadcast sent via text blast, right? So what if you don't own a phone or you can't afford one or you just don't use one as part of your natural day or if you live in a region that has really poor service? Um, and then it gets really complex when we start to think, even if you could readily access that information or you could outright receive the information, there's huge variance in behaviors, right? I, I think you look at this pandemic and that's a perfect example. People react very differently to the exact same news. <laughs> and then that news might be presented in many different ways. So there may be differences in belief. There may be differences in cultural barriers. There may be confusion. Um, the specific way in which you receive information might cause you to behave differently or accept that information differently than uh, another channel, right? So if you, a very trusted friend, were to tell me something, I'm naturally probably a little bit more, as long as you're in good state of mind and you're a reliable friend, right? I might be more prone to believe you than uh, if a stranger just screamed something at me from across the street. So if you think about that and abstract that, you, you start to realize that consumption is a big portion too. Um, and, and what is my background for being able to understand that information? Am I an epidemiologist? Because if I am, my baseline level of knowledge on that topic might cause me to more readily understand what the CDC is trying to say and all those nuances. Um, different exposures to context and, and experience. Someone who works in an ER, somebody who has a family member who is hospitalized might be more receptive. Um, and the counter side of that is vulnerability to misinformation. The lack of resources to discern and overturn that bad information plays part in sort of this, this consumption. Oh man, you said so much good stuff there. So I want to pick a few different out. pieces apart yeah. <laughs> because it was like you, you were able to throw at me so many great parts that uh, I don't want to skip over. And so first off, I'll tell you a story about when I was last in Greece a few months ago, and I was in the northern part of Corfu, and I was at this concert, and it was one of those concerts where you are supposed to be very quiet, right? And uh, it's not one of those dance party concerts, as you would think in Greece, but it, it was one of those concerts, everybody's there meditating and closing their eyes and being spiritual, and out of nowhere... All of the phones erupt because Greece had sent out, and more specifically, I think Corfu, the island, had sent out one of those texts that you're talking about. Yeah. But the thing about it is, and you make this point so brilliantly, and that's why I wanted to tell the story, is that it was all in Greek. And then it was in English afterwards. But I was with people that don't speak either of those languages. And so for them to get this emergency text that's in Greek or English, they just look at it and go like, oh, I don't know. And I could translate it from English to them to tell them what it was. 
But if I wasn't around, then what are they going to be able to do, right? Uh, It did say, there's another funny part to this story, but I don't know if we really need to get into it, but it it was basically about fires and the fire danger, right? And so to be careful with fire and all of that. Uh, And so that was that first piece that you were talking about. And I thought that is so crucial. Like, what is the information we're getting to people? Who needs to get that information? How are we making sure that everyone who gets that information is able to understand and digest and really take this information in? I think the default mode is just to send it to the phone because it's like everybody has a phone. But that brings me to the next point that I wanted to talk about, which is something that Charles, our uh, our most <laughs> recurring guest, I was going to say our favorite guest, but I don't know if he gets that title. <laughs> our most recurring guest, Charles Radcliffe, always talks about this. And it is really his main thing because he loves old technology. And mm-hmm. for him he like is adamantly against the idea of a vaccine passport that is digital because it's like, well, what if I want it on my old iPhone four and it runs the iOS, whatever version that had, if it's the even running, passport, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> vaccine passports don't go on that, but I still use, I don't have right. a smartphone that I use. I use a dumb phone and there's a lot of people that have gone in that direction, right? that don't like to use smartphones because of whatever reasons that they have. And Charles is one of those people. Uh, And so that's the other thing that you were talking about. Like there's many people that maybe they just don't want to use smartphones or they can't use smartphones. They don't have service for smartphone or they just don't have service in general because I guess it doesn't have to be a smartphone. It can be SMS text. And so if you have a dumb phone in that case, it would work. But there is this idea of really thinking it through. And then that third piece that you were talking about and really like the accessibility on this and making sure that um, people have this access. I think last thing I wanted to say, because I've been ranting for a little bit and you came on here to (laughs) talk to me, uh, so I'll let you speak in a minute. But the interesting part about this is the accessibility that I was speaking about was more about like accessing all of the data that is on the internets out in the world that is about us and Mm -hmm. our access to that data. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I think where I was coming from when I was talking about, is it a right to be able to access all of the data that any company or app that we've interacted with has on us. That third thing is a, is probably a week long topic. Um, <laughs> I, I love that topic by the way. Um, so I will, for the sake of organization, I'll, I'll, I'll go one at a time. Um, so Phil, let me, let me refresh my thoughts. So, I love the example that you just gave on the the text messages at the concert because not only are you illustrating, you know, one aspect where which is language, right? Language may be a, a definite barrier to being able to really fairly consume the information. And if we don't think about that when we broadcast, 
have we done a disservice to those populations we're trying to reach? Um, but also think about context, right? So if I'm sitting at a concert with a bunch of friends, am I really going to look at my phone when it beeps? I, it may be true for some people, but let's say the concert was like in process and everyone's jumping around and music's loud. Am I really going to look at my phone and catch that emergency broadcast? Considering things like that, right? Considering who the person is you're trying to reach, what the context is, what the situation is, and really making sure that we are thinking through how to get that information to you based on the criticality of that information uh, is a thing, right? So if I really did have to think about a critical broadcast and I knew that a population was there at the concert, I would follow up the text with maybe a louder public announcement or put something on the, on the big screen or there's any number of ways to do this. But the point is, has someone really thought through? Now that specific text, may not have had to reach you very urgently. But if it did, you'll notice there's a reason we have those big sirens, those big tornado alarms in my area, where no matter what I'm doing, that is something that'll catch my attention. So then I can move on to the next sort of uh, vector of information. I can figure out what's going on. I might turn on the TV, check my phone or, or something. But now I've been given another indicator. I've been given another alert. I, I love that term dumb phone because I've said that myself too. And usually self-deprecatingly because it was actually quite some time before I got my first smartphone. I resisted. Um, <laughs> but that said, you're absolutely right. Not if we don't plan for multiple different types of vectors of communication, we can't just assume that everybody has a smartphone, especially if we're talking on a global scale. If broadcasting a global pandemic Broadcasting guidance for a global pandemic involves reaching as much of the populace as possible. Smartphones are not the vector because I'm pretty sure if you did an actual population study on how much of the world's populace has and regularly accesses their smartphone and regularly consumes information and use from their smartphone, that would probably be a smaller number than most of us are expecting. So Again, a, another consideration uh, when you are thinking about something like data access uh, and certainly starting from dissemination all the way down to consumption. Me as an individual, I will consume information off my phone with a, with a healthy dose of skepticism, but it's not the only place I'm going to go look. Then you're thinking about time, right? Do I actually have the time and the follow through to go on and get more information? So if you've sent me just this little snapshot of information, enough to get my interest in, in a head nod, right? But I don't really get the full gravity of it. <laughs> and I have to go somewhere else and go through a very deliberate process of logging in somewhere or, or doing a search. Some people may have the time and bandwidth to do that. Others may not. If, if I'm working my third shift, my third, you know, graveyard shift, and I just want to get home, I may likely forget and just go home and go to sleep and miss that vital piece of information. Have we considered things like that? Have we placed the information in multiple different ways in front of the person who needs to see it? So uh, the, the third thing is kind of a, a huge topic in and of itself. Do you want me to go into that right now or do you want to break that up? We can, we can jump into the third topic in just a second. What I'm thinking yeah. about is the, the third piece that you were also talking about and maybe just remind me real fast what it was with the um, 
the like skepticism that you would get or how you get that different information is so it's not the how you get it it's from who you get it from and then yeah where how it's interpreted right it's yeah. uh that's something that i didn't even think about as yeah because if i get this uh text message or something from the government it's like ah oh, they're just trying to control us like sheep might be some people's yeah. uh ways of looking at it and then you have other people who are going to follow it to the t and so you have this just so many x factors really i guess the the cliff notes of what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes is you have so many x factors when you're trying to get this information out there how can we best do this so that it takes into account all of these different x factors is really what you're talking about, right? Like, mm -hmm. what can we think through before we have to send this information out so we can make sure that it reaches the right or the most amount of people possible in the right way? Yeah. So there are some really interesting examples of public health and environmental guidance being put out to communities with not so great outcomes. And the interesting thing is when you look at the populations in question, these are actually the folks who are arguably most affected by the situation sometimes, whether by proximity or context. Yet those same populations were measured in these studies to have the lowest positive response rate to whatever that guidance was. So for instance, I may live directly by a body of water and I might fish and swim in it. And the city might publish some very specific alerts on the dangers of using that water. So now how does that information reach me? So consider that not only do I and my neighbors not abide by any of that, but we may actually engage in behaviors that make the dangers worse. And so you really want to think about why is that? And that could be a number of things, right? A survey might reveal that the community has a high population with a primary language other than English, like you said, and that most information is disseminated via more traditional means. Maybe I don't trust what comes on the news, but I trust what comes from my pastor or the community center or town hall or my neighbors or my neighborhood association. Maybe receiving data from there causes me to act on that a little bit more. Now, what happens then if there's a large element of necessity? That might provide a, a, a really strong resistance, right? If there's some food or economic security of my community with a heavy reliance on fishing these waters, then as a populace, as a community, there may be resistance. So where if you had isolated me in any other situation, you had told me these things, I might be more prone to believing or lending credence to that. If I as a community know that, look, we need these waters and I'm willing to take that risk or I'm more willing to disregard this guidance regarding those waters because I don't like the alternative, that may lend itself into the epicenter of uh, resistance to information, which would then propagate through neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, right? And maybe a neighboring community that has nothing to do with the water gets that information and then out of context also picks up that resistance, right? So resistance might propagate through a populace. And I think you see that happening in, in any number of, of current events. Yeah, 
I was just going to say that it feels a lot like what's going on with the pandemic and how mm -hmm. many different narratives there are and how many different ways it's being looked at or you see certain groups wanting to be opposed to certain pieces of the pandemic, whether it's wearing a mask or getting vaccinated or whatever it may be. And so in these cases, I guess it's very simple because it's theory and we're just talking theoretically about how to look at this. But I was thinking if you know that a certain community or I guess a higher level than that is how can you best get the information to these communities? You have to go in there and be with the community, right? To see how they are and to see what the best ways of getting them information would be, whether that's through the pastor or through an elder in the community, whatever it is that is going to render the greatest value and effects but what i'm wondering is since there are so many communities i mean even within the us you have so many different communities how can you as a government operation that's trying to get this information out do that in a way that effectively is able to capture all of this different, like the best practices for each community. You're absolutely right that it's a very complex and multi-layered problem. Um, there are many, many, many diverse stakeholders, um, very many different behavioral patterns, but it all comes down to us realizing, recognizing and accepting that this is an important issue and being willing to do something about it. Because if you think about it, yes, it's very different in that people have different informational needs. They have different contexts. They have different willingness to accept certain types of information, different social networks, different realities. But that's no less the case in when it comes to defining labor policy, when it comes to defining uh, dispersal of, of healthcare dollars. Um, when it comes to defining socioeconomic realities or, you know, when you're if you're a mayor of a city and you really need to uh, take note of a, a very diverse uh, group of, of constituents and, and people and citizens who are who are reliant on you for your decisions, you're still making those types of evaluations. Right. You're still making those types of very large and impactful decisions across a very diverse populace. I think the point is. When do we commit to doing that due diligence, right? And the argument I would make there is we need to make sure that information reaches people in a fair manner, that it's timely, that it's evenly dispersed, uh, that we're not creating some exploitable or dangerous or completely or even completely unintended, uh, but still harmful asymmetry. Why? Because we need to consider these things and the larger impact, right? If I lack fair understanding of a problem or an understanding of my ability to actually affect an outcome, and I'm not provided reasonable access to the means and resources to create change, that creates an enormous disadvantage. And as the pandemic demonstrates, there are repercussions that extend beyond just my own welfare to the welfare of the community, because now my lack of awareness 
and our collective lack of awareness and understanding expands the radius of risk for everybody. As our policymakers, our leaders, our you know, public health officials, our teachers, as everybody starts to understand the power and the importance of how information is disseminated and how it propagates through a populace, more policies can be made to sort of protect uh, an individual's right to access that data, which is important. So as you're explaining this, the main thing that I'm thinking about is how mm-hmm. fragile that model is right now and yep. how we've been seeing it taken advantage of for the past year, right? Yeah. And it really, there's something that you said earlier that stood out to me, which was the ones that tend to be a little skeptical of the information that is coming out are the ones that need the information the most. Oftentimes, and, yes, that is very true. Yeah, so I'm wondering if we can go into that a little bit more, like who do these groups tend to be or what is is there a reasoning behind that? Sure. Uh, there are upstream conditions of our environment, our situation, um, our day-to-day reality that absolutely affect our well-being. Um, our, our health state, our behavior, and our outcomes. And these things also may manifest as uh, a resistance to information, uh, even within a very specific subpopulation of people. Researchers will see variants tied to income, background, occupation, conditions of, of life and lifestyle uh, with uh, stopping smoking, for instance, or, or never starting smoking, or, you know, uh, substance abuse, um, consumption of heavy consumption of, of, uh, unhealthy foods, uh, of fast foods or, or, or whatnot. And you'll find that there are a lot of factors that may pay a, play a part in this. One of which is not just the information that's available to you about an unhealthy or less healthy activity, but your willingness to actually listen to that information, um, your willingness to believe that information enough and to ascribe enough importance to that information that you're willing to make a lifestyle change. <clears throat> that said, certainly a lack of information across a populace would exacerbate the effects of something like disinformation, whether that comes via bad advice from a friend Uh, intentional marketing from a given industry. If the ratio of good to bad information is high, there there are some very obvious issues. Um, One of these is, you know, a lack of awareness and understanding of information at large could greatly increase a population's vulnerability to bad information, which in turn might lead to increased acceptance. And in the absence of some basis of knowledge or some competing good information, bad information certainly could propagate with less friction, right? If you are somebody with better knowledge of of dietary implications, right, and you understand healthcare and you understand the importance of of, of good nutrition and such, and I pick you up and place you in the middle of a pocket of individuals with less good information about dietary health standards about good eating habits and and what that actually means to you 
with some influence, you may be able to start to positively affect behaviors. Now, I, I think that's that's pretty intuitive. I'm, now, how that happens is, is very complex, right? And 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 very varied. But I think the point is that if you don't exist and all you have there is bad information, what what's the catalyst for that change, right? So, is it not to some extent a responsibility of the larger community or those of, of society or, or whomever to try to get that good information into those pockets where maybe good information uh, is less prevalent, right? To compete a little bit with that bad information. And that information though, I imagine is going to get resisted when it gets into these different pockets. How can we counter that? This is highly dependent on context, um, but there's definitely exposure to less good information, less founded, less verified, less objective, arguably less responsible information that might penetrate a subpopulation more readily than another. Being able to understand what allows that is a similarly important exercise to uh, our, our previous example of the concert, right? Has someone taken the time to identify this popular population as needing a certain packet of information? Uh, have they identified why this population might be resisting that information? Have they identified other vectors, other ways to facilitate communication? Have they actually put in a little bit of time and thought into this the way you might think about any other type of policy. Uh, we have social socioeconomic policies, we have uh, health policies, we have uh, education policies that affect a very wide and diverse populace with wide and diverse beliefs and needs. It's not beyond our ability to start having these discussions around dissemination of information and data as, as a new topic. Mm. And I really like how you brought this back to, it's not like we haven't done it before. This is very much, we can generalize the way that these things are happening. And it's just the same way that a mayor goes into the communities of his town or her town and looks at what is the best way to get myself elected <laughs> and how can I use this, whatever platforms are needed to get me the vote. So there are ways that we're already doing this. It's just a matter of making sure that we are taking advantage of these known ways and almost like standing on their shoulders so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. It, it's certainly not a realistic aspect aspiration to try to prescribe a perfect pathway forward on this podcast, uh, maybe in future episodes. Um, but I think the larger point is we should be having these discussions. We should be trying to figure this out because information security, the right to access information in a format, at a tempo, in uh, via means that are actually realistic and uh, available to you. And being able to do so in a way that's symmetric, right? Not asymmetric, but that is not uneven and not unequal. <laughs> uh, these are discussions that we absolutely should be having. 
Um, and, and again, we're, we're not trying to necessarily solve the problem. I think what we're really doing and what we're really advocating for is having those discussions. And it's not a political thing, right? It's not partisan. It's not subjective. It's just simply we don't have to all agree on what algorithms should and should not do or how, where, or what. But it would be good to be able to see and understand what those algorithms are doing such that we're able to independently have discussions or set guardrails or indicate areas of additional attention and study, uh, indicate critical deficiencies, uh, and start to talk about how to remediate these things. Does that make sense? 100%. I may so, have gone a little bit to the to uh, off, off side quest there. So no, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the way that you're looking at this and the depth that you're seeing it and also the frameworks that you're bringing to it, making sure that you're trying to cover each piece of it. It's very helpful to realize how complicated it is, but yet also how we can effectively bring about change. And then, like you said, maybe it's not that we have the exact plan right now, but we need to be talking about this kind of yes. stuff because this is not something that's just going to magically heal. And it's not going to just go away because we don't look at it, right? If anything, it's just going to get worse. And which is kind of what I feel like has been happening over the past whatever uh, decade that we've started to have more and more data and information and ways of getting information. And so it's like we're using standard ways of disseminating this information, especially like these alerts on the phones. And we're not really thinking through other ways that may be more useful. Uh, so moving on, though, I want to jump to another topic that I know you're very passionate about. And I want to go into legislations around AI. I know there is a bit of uh, dance we're going to have to do. So if there's anything that you don't feel comfortable with talking about, feel free to let us know. It's not a big deal. I think the main thing that I'm wondering is when it comes to AI and how there are so many different use cases for different ways of deploying machine learning models, whether that is a computer vision model or it's just a recommendation engine, you have all of these different ways of doing it. And then you have all of the different verticals that you can deploy these in. It can be in healthcare, it can be in e-commerce, whatever you may be deploying it in has different implications. And so what I've been talking to a few people about recently is the idea of how a blanket AI regulation is not the best way of going about trying to regulate this ecosystem. And it may be more effective to do things in certain verticals and then say, all right, if you're in healthcare, you really need to look at these different things. But more specifically, if you're in healthcare and you're dealing with pacemakers, then you really need to focus on this. These are the regulations. That may get a bit cumbersome because there are so many different use cases. And even in healthcare, there's millions of ways that we're looking at trying to use machine learning. I would love to know your stance on if there needs to be a standard AI regulation 
if it, like maybe just the broad topics, uh, like a golden rule per se, or if we should really dive into these details and try and regulate in a very, very methodical manner. So you make a very astute point earlier that it's less about trying to define in certain terms uh, a regulation or what the content of that regulation is and more about having a discussion that helps to frame a regulation and helps to frame the awareness of the populace who's affected by that regulation. Um, again, I, I fall back on sort of my my default knee-jerk reaction, which is it's highly contextual, right? I, I think even as far as large governing bodies, right, the EU, the United States government and such, uh, coming up with AI standards, uh, it, it's a very difficult exercise. Uh, it, there's a, a, a balance of sort of uh, political and philosophical philosophical ideologies that have to come into play what should be exposed to the public, what should not be exposed to the public, uh, where do we value or how do we balance the, the rights of an individual versus the rights of, let's say, a, a corporation, right? In one instance, you may have uh, a, a group of individuals who very much value transparency and the rights of private citizen data above all. Uh, in another case, there may be some argument that we don't really own our data. Uh, it's sort of a, a social um, social responsibility of ours to provide our data for the good of the larger populace. You know, someone might make that argument, and it's really really hard to attempt to level some sort of blanket policy that would go over every government <laughs> that uses data, right? So, you know, there's a component of not wanting to be exploited, right? And as we have all these different technologies that run off of our data and spit out products, products that very well may have huge impacts on our lives, whether the price we pay at a pump or the price I pay for healthcare or some policy that's five years from now going to pop up because of some statistical study that uh, that I participated in. I need to know things like that if I'm going to make informed decisions and hold my leadership accountable. So like we chatted about earlier, I, we generate a lot of information, whether intentional or not. Uh, the difference is that some of us do so knowingly, and to some extent, we acknowledge and we accept those risks in return for the service being provided. Um, for instance, some of us get a large amount of value from social media, uh, such that you may not mind being profiled and your data being harvested, right? You, that may be an adult decision that you are making knowingly. Um, and you at least know what's going on. But what about people who don't know? What about a less informed consumer? And this is not about one group being smug and claiming to be more shrewd than another. It goes many, many layers deeper than that because of the sophistication and, and the complexity of the technology. Uh, more than we realize a lot of times, because if left unchecked, the exploits will grow at a far greater pace than our savvy, right? So it's a huge topic for another day, but there's a growing amount of regulation out there that requires companies to more fully disclose what they're collecting and why. Um, and my question to you is, how many web surfers do you think actually read, much less comprehend the, you know, use my data, don't use my data button? Oh, yeah. And then when you're denied access to a web page, how many people just say, okay, fine, click, right? <laughs> exactly. 
And if my usage of your app is going to make me a lab rat in a giant experiment, as cynical as that sounds, I kind of want to know that. And if you're then taking that data and imagine selling for great profit to benefit someone else with none of my consent, that could be problematic as well, especially if the recipient of that data does not have my best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm making this up. But what if a realty app, for instance, took your search filters on the range of houses you're looking at, deduced the amount that you'd be willing to spend, and then fed that to the seller so they know how much they can inflate their price on you, mm. right? What if the results of your health survey were used to create plans that increased your costs in order to provide savings to others? You know, without arguing the ethics or the dynamics of that, or you know, one government's priorities over another. I know that I, as a as an individual, I would want to know something like that, you know. And as we work in increasingly more complex and sophisticated technologies, things become harder to see and harder to interpret. You know, if I were to put a, a very complex model in front of a, a layperson, they wouldn't know what they're looking at. It's just a block of mysterious code, right? And even where we have transparency and and we put things out there, that complexity can become an issue. And that's why we need to take particular care ensure that our, our handling of information, uh, the usage of said information, uh, has some sort of shared responsibility and shared understanding. And then those discussions have some element of uh, ethics, some element of, of auditability. Again, not trying to prescribe what those things should be, but saying that those discussions should take place in whatever vertical you're talking about or for whatever populace or whatever governing body. I love the notion of shared responsibility. I think that's huge and it doesn't come up enough. And mm -hmm. it makes me wonder, in your eyes, what are some discussions that you would like to be seeing more that you're just not seeing right now? Sure. Um, if you don't know or you don't understand or you don't have access to information to adequately protect yourself your livelihood, your family, your ability to afford essential things, um, and those of your neighbors, how would you responsibly, or how would you hold your leadership responsible for bad decisions they make on those same lines, right? Or how would you vote for one, one policy versus another? Right. If, if you were sitting at a ballot and there's there's two issues at play and you don't actually understand those issues, how would you responsibly make the vote that is in your best interest? How would you know that your vote is actually going to the right thing? There needs to be more discussion around that interface between a voting populace and leadership such that leadership is more accountable for explaining how and why, first of all, for understanding the data themselves, right? Um, but also being able to explain how and why data is being used at any given, in, in any given way, shape, or form in a language that's accessible to the consumer, right? So I don't want to see legalese. I want to see more discussion about this is important. This is how you're affected. This is, these are the two ways we, we propose of going about things. And how do your values align with proposal A or proposal B, right? Sometimes it's just simplification, which I know is a challenging ask in, in most political systems. But 
I think if we adequately hold our policymakers, corporations, and ourselves accountable for ensuring that we promote and preserve a fair right to knowledge in general, some of these conversations will naturally lend themselves to better ideation, right? Um, more productive sort of uh, forays into, into what your values and your perspectives are as, uh, as a stakeholder uh, versus mine, right? As, as we start to understand these discussions, I'm not saying it'll ever get easy, but it'll certainly be easier than it is now. <laughs> mm. So earlier you mentioned audits and I was talking to Ryan, who we both know, and mm -hmm. I asked him, is there anything you want me to ask Stephen when he comes on? And he said, <laughs> ask him about audits in the context of the U.S. federal legislation, legislation and enforcement. Sure. Tricky. So without going to the specifics of, of legislation and, and policy and, and values and sort of a, the plethora of opinions out there, let's take an example of um, two different sets of stakeholders and, and how they view consumer information, right? On the one hand, you have a group of people who really place the ultimate emphasis on privacy rights and individual private ownership of the data that I as an individual generate, right? So you've got one party out there advocating for me in that sense. Let's say you have another party advocating out there and saying, it's still to the benefit of this person, me, if we just allow for responsible usage of that information. So we're not going to say, hey, look, you own this. To some extent, by using the service, let's say they argue that I've given up a certain amount of rights to that data, right? By appearing in public, I've given out a, a certain amount of anonymity, right? Let's say they make that argument. And their argument is that that same data allows for these services to be better tuned to my needs. So ultimately, I benefit in a different way, right? I don't know that you're ever going to get the two to agree necessarily, because you've got very different <laughs> value systems, right? Um, but do you have to make them agree? Or is this more a matter of being able to look at the systems? And in Ryan's case, I, I believe he's asking specifically about uh, analytics, right? So where you've got these algorithms, you've got these machines, you've got these constructs helping to inform decisions or coming up with recommendations. And do we really know whose values are captured in those recommendations. Without actually deciding group A or group B, I think it's much easier for us to at least say, well, let's set up so that an independent party can go in and preserving all corporate privacy, preserving all individual privacy, the same way as you might audit uh, accounting books, right? Let's have an independent party be able to audit these systems to be able to at least understand and better classify them and what they're doing so that we can make these decisions. That I think benefits everybody, right? So it doesn't really matter if you fall in this camp or, or that camp, it allows us to better assess the technologies we are employing and line them up with our individual perspectives and value systems. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And there's, so the the idea how we were talking about just basic information, right? Like to get out to the public 
is difficult. We have to be very aware of how we are disseminating that information, uh, like warnings or whatnot. And then if you had an audit or something that was being used and there were people that, or we wanted the masses to know about it and we wanted it to be understood better. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, when I say audit, I, I think I, that's probably where it confused you. If we had a something that was audited, like an algorithm, and then we wanted to show the results of that to the masses because in this hypothetical situation, they are interested in that. (laughs) And so making sure that we get it to people in the right level of, of understanding and abstraction for them. Again, it's like, uh, what I'm realizing from this conversation is just how complicated something that I have taken for granted actually is. And what I've taken for granted is this idea that you tell someone something And then they will understand it. But what I now know from talking to you is it is not like that at all. And there are so many different factors that we need to keep in our mind and as to how we tell someone, when we tell them, the context we tell them in, who is telling them, uh, the amount of trust that they have in the the source of this information. So uh, I find that fascinating. I know we have to wrap up. Uh, it's getting really late. You've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it so much. I have one last question for you, Stephen. Are you a robot? I, to my knowledge, am not. (laughs) Um, And I've tried multiple times to verify. Um, (laughs) But at the risk of getting highly philosophical, (laughs) I would say, no, I am not a robot. Not, not, Not in the definition, not, not in this definition. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There's a little R2D2. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and explaining all this to me. I really appreciate you spending the time and I hope to chat with you again about all of this and even more. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs>